and welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And this week we are recording from Mark's house. <laughs> yeah, from Mark's parents' house. <laughs> I like how that's how we open almost every episode is either we yeah. talk about the weather or we talk about where we're recording. It's true. But because we're at Mark's parents' house, uh, we have the most adorable little guest today. So cute. Mark's family cat, Tango. He's... Uh, He's just the sweetest little boy. He is. He's not very old, right? He's a young kitty. He's only two. Oh, and oh. he's orange and just sweet and not like harsh orange, like a soft, glowing a orange. A subtle orange, oh, for sure. So beautiful. <laughs> I think next, I think from now on, we should just like fake where we're. It's like, we're coming at you live <laughs> from the White House. Yes. <laughs> like from Parliament Hill. Talking about the White House, have you seen the HBO interview that was just done on Donald Trump? HBO? No, I have not. <laughs> um, you're missing out, first off, because it is prime um, comedic material. As uh, always. Yeah, it's honestly, I must say the interviewer was fantastic. He did just enough like he he did just enough backhanded complimenting of Donald Trump that Donald Trump would like actually answer him and like seem oh. to have like a bit of respect for him as a journalist. Okay. But then he'd like really like dig in there with some questions and then Donald Trump was just like oh. <laughs> At one point he said something like, "Oh, well we have we have less cases than the world like he was comparing america to, to the, the world, world and we're like you're part of the world which obviously know. makes which kind of makes sense but to it, be honest but it didn't it was a lot um, it just like makes sense in his brain like yeah it's america or everyone else yeah but yeah anyway so that was that was interesting you should really go look at that there's also a fantastic edit no idea who it's by but cruds <laughs> to you uh up, it's donald trump in the interview talking to donald trump in the interview because there's oh, so many points funny. where he contradicts himself <laughs> Uh, it's, it's gold, really. When I was at... It should win an Emmy. It should win <laughs> a Shorty Award, yeah. which I believe are the, the web series awards. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, enough about... Enough, enough about, about that. friends down south <sighs> in the yeah. United States. What are we talking about today on the podcast? This week, we are going... I wanted to do just like a really vintage classic I Heritage Minute. We're going to do Emily Carr. Oh, Emily our Carr. Girl. And the totem poles. And the totem poles. Yeah. It's a, a very melodramatic Heritage it's Minute. It's so melodramatic. It's a very serious one for yeah. the content. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's just her like painting and she's definitely falls into that mold of a tortured artist kind of thing yeah but also i don't really believe in that generally like i don't think you have to be tortured to be a good artist <laughs> but she definitely had like struggles throughout her life and i think they try to symbolize that in the very like dramatic like lighting and music it's essentially her just canoeing out to these islands in british columbia yeah. where there are totem poles and then her painting the landscape in the totem poles and then it ends with her near the end of her life when she was still painting and yeah. she was like one of Canada's top artists by the time she died which is interesting like yeah so many artists especially impressionists who didn't who were painting an, in an unconventional form for the time yeah. don't really get recognized until after their death exactly and that's one thing that I I remember like learning about Emily Carr and knowing that like she was famous in her lifetime which was pretty yeah. cool um, I actually I saw a collection of her paintings and I don't know if it's a permanent fixture or if it was just when I was there mm -hmm. uh, when I was at the Museum of Civilization in Ottawa oh, okay. a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. They had they had a collection of Emily Carr's work uh, and I believe they were originals. It seemed like it was like a display. Probably. Um, I, but yeah. I know she sold a lot of her paintings to Ottawa. So yeah. Super beautiful and very intricate. And yeah. And I, I know her painting goes through different phases. Like it yeah. becomes more, I think, abstract throughout her life. Not yeah. abstract, but like more impressionistic throughout her yeah. lifetime. The one thing I don't love about this Heritage Minute is it gives the impression that whatever culture created the totem poles is like not there anymore yeah but she very much was taken there by the indigenous people who yeah. made the totem poles and then she knew those people but in the heritage minute it just seems like she's this woman who has discovered 
these totem poles that are like yeah. being because in the heritage minute they're like covered in moss and like there's like like foliage growing through the wood yeah and no actual indigenous peoples so no. it's like oh look at this white lady who's preserving a <sighs> culture it's like mm, mm. not quite and that is a criticism that she gets a lot today as, as a painter and like she was also an author so okay things that she writes about people have kind of criticized her for being very colonialist in that sense but i think again for that time it was very woke to be like well i'm into this culture and i think there's a difference between like i think there is such a thing as just not knowing like if she just like it doesn't matter like if she's educated on some things you still like this was years and years ago and the things that you know and the things that you know are appropriate to say and are appropriate to yeah. like talk about with a culture and when you're like painting a culture um a different culture that's not yours um, yeah i think that it's definitely you know there is just that semblance of like just not understanding fully yeah and it's it's really tricky when it comes to art as well because it is someone from outside that culture trying to represent it and then they make all of the money from it. Yeah. Which isn't great. But I do think that Emily Carr's paintings are a huge component of how totem poles have become iconically Canadian, Canadian. on the West Coast. And to this day, you have totem pole makers. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, I was watching this really interesting documentary about um, there was, I believe, a totem pole taken by researchers from Harvard at like the turn of the century like they just took totem poles which is extremely like don't do that like the totem poles re represent so much for the culture and like it tells the story of their like tribe's history and like the story of people and like iconic figures in their culture and so when Harvard took them they did it without permission. Yeah. And then I believe sometime in the 80s or 90s, there was an American bill or piece of legislation that passed that said that, you know, like those kinds of things need to be returned yeah. to their cultures and stuff. And so it was essentially a documentary all about the process of how that happened, how they negotiated with the indigenous people and ensured that it was returned. And like they created such a good relationship with those people that the people made them a totem pole about... Aww. the story of the totem ball being taken that's and then so returned cool. so that's yeah so it's cool. like it's like that's so much better than having yeah. this other totem pole that you're not even connected to in any and way and now it's like a piece of yeah. a piece of you in it so we're gonna get into the life of emily carr and how she became a famous canadian painter i'm excited so the same year british columbia joined confederation an individual was born in this province who would go on to be a canadian icon and her name was emily carr oh i was really hoping you were gonna be like and her name was joanne mcdonald <laughs> just, <laughs> just like, someone you've never heard of psych this isn't about emily carr at all uh, <laughs> so emily was born in victoria on december 13th 1871 she was the daughter of british immigrants uh, and Richard Carr and Emily Saunders. She had four older sisters and would eventually have a younger brother. So like <laughs> five girls, one boy. Eventually. They just kept going until they got a boy. <laughs> the Carr children were raised on English tradition. Richard, her father, was a successful wholesale merchant um, born in England and believed it was sensible to live on Vancouver Island, a colony of Br Great Britain, where he could practice British customs and continue his British citizenship. So he's like, I'm English and I'm all about it. <laughs> and so will you. <laughs> so we're going to go to this cool island. He just loves the queen. Uh, yeah, it's the yeah. king at that point. No, it's the queen. Uh, no. It would be it would be Victoria. OK. Yeah. Um, and then it, briefly a king and then queen yeah. again. Or two kings. I don't know. Who cares? The monarchy is so overrated. Who cares? The family home was made in a lavish English fashion with high ceilings, ornate moldings, and a parlor. Her father was taught in the Presbyterian tradition with Sunday morning prayers and evening Bible readings. Presbyterian church. I told you they make the best sandwiches. Funerals, <laughs> weddings, place to go. But have you participated in their Sunday morning prayers and evening Bible readings? Um, I feel like they're less fire. <laughs> Just going to throw it out. Probably less fire than the sandwiches. I feel like I've been to a service, but never a late night Bible reading. Honey, dim the lights. We're going to read the Bible. Wow. Bust out Matthew. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, you're feeling it tonight. 
<laughs> little Luke 13 in there. Ooh. <laughs> Richard Carr called on one child per week to recite the sermon, and Emily consistently had trouble reading it. So oh, Emily, no. not a great reader. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like that's a common trend in people who are visu- visual learners or, like, visual artists. <laughs> At age nine, Emily produced a pencil sketch of her father. Encouraged by her fairly competent, though stiff, portrait, Richard arranged for his talented daughter to receive private instruction. Um, Emily Henrietta Woods, Ava Almond Withrow. Her middle name is Almond. That's interesting. (laughs) It's just anything goes. It's like you can name your kid anything. Anything. Um, were some of the local teachers who introduced her to the romantic realist tradition of English landscape painting. Well, you know what? What a cool dad. I think that's nice. He's like, you can't read for crap, but uh, you drew an... (laughs) dumb, stupid, illiterate, dumb daughter. You painted... This is pretty good. You draw okay. But you draw good. (laughs) You draw good. Let's encourage that. Also, I feel like because she's the youngest daughter, there's way less pressure. Yeah. And so some of her early art teachers were fairly progressive and they were determined that art could be more than just an accomplishment for a young lady. So, you know, you like you go off, you send your rich daughter to learn art and someone's like, oh, wow, she's so accomplished. But they're like, no, you could like this is a career. This like, is this so could be 2020. Serious. This is like this is like um, a little woman, one of the sisters. Oh, I hate myself right now. Anyway, tiny women, minute women. That's us. <laughs> That's us. Uh, yeah, one of the sisters in Little Women, she goes on to be an artist and is like oh, okay. actually respected for that. Like it's a respectable yeah. choice for a woman. She goes to like France and like learns how to paint. Yeah. And yeah. I think that art early on, because it was something that it was encouraged that women could do. Yeah. They have access to the education to do it. Right. So when it does start to be a serious career, women are actually on a somewhat level playing field in terms of skill, not in terms of reputation necessarily. I think male artists yeah. to this day are usually taken more seriously depending on the medium. Yeah. But yeah. So Emily's mother died in 1886 and her father died two years later in 1888. Aww. Um. So, you know, a common theme in this podcast. Your parents, Your parents die. just die. They're out. <laughs> See you later, mom and dad. Peace. I'm an orphan now. <laughs> Thank you very much. I thought, you know, in like Disney movies, like there's so yeah. many orphans. So many. They make being an orphan sound so great. I yeah. even remember being a kid, not wishing my parents would die, oh of my course, God. but like playing make-believe and like, I'm an orphan. <laughs> I'm, I'm a poor orphan. What movie made it sound good? I'm trying to think of one that made being an orphan sound good. Annie. Oliver Annie Twist. was not good. But it's fun. They're like singing and stuff. Oliver Twist, not good. Cinderella. <laughs> not good. Belle lost her mom. Everything pans out, though, and they have fun, exciting yeah. adventures. Everyone, everyone wants a little struggle and then to get over it and then be yeah. like, I've really succeeded in my life. If I can do it, you can too. (laughs) That's what we all want. That's Emily right now. (laughs) Okay, I love it. So after the death of her parents, Emily began to pursue art more seriously. Her older sister, Edith, took guardianship of all the children, and Emily attended less than one year of high school at Victoria High School. Because, like, she couldn't fucking read. (laughs) She's not good at reading. She's just been painting landscapes this whole time. She's like, Hamlet? (laughs) What? Uh, I'll pass. Thanks. Uh, No, thanks. Also great that she was just like... I'm done. <laughs> right? like, I don't want to go and anymore. And Edith was like, I've got five years to look after. Like, fine. Emily, yeah, she's like, honestly, do whatever I just you don't want. have time. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> go paint a picture. <laughs> yeah. So after this failed attempt at scholarship, Evelyn Withrow, one of her private instructors, helped her apply to the California School of Design in San Francisco in ni- 1890. I really believe that that's still how life kind of should be. I don't think it's fair that we all have to graduate from university to get like any job, you know, because some people yeah. tell like my like my dad, for example, he didn't finish high school and he works as a laborer. But you can't even do that now. Like the place that he works, yeah, he works for true. Michelin and you can't even work at Michelin unless you have your grade 12. The, yeah. And some people some people really aren't cut out for high school. <laughs> it's true. And that's what Emily did. 
she went to post-secondary <laughs> education. Good for her. <laughs> Without getting the first education. <laughs> she didn't finish high school. She That's was like, okay. okay, I'm going to art school. Bye. That's okay. She's living um, her best life. Yeah. And she's going to California, you said? She's going to San, San Francisco. Yep. Her. So at this time, most aspiring artists, such as Emily, would further their training in London, England. That was like the ticket. But Emily had personal ties to San Francisco. It was where her father had made his fortune as a merchant and had met his wife. And it was a short boat journey home to British Columbia. Right. So she could still visit uh, her siblings regularly yep. or they could go visit her. That's so cool. But above all, the California School of Design offered first-class instruction resembling that of the best institutions in Europe. Students began by drawing in charcoal from replicas of classical structures and progressed to the undraped model, still life, and finally landscape. Naked people. Naked people. She was drawing naked boys. Oh, no, she wasn't. We'll get into it. Oh, God. <laughs> so Emily left uh, Victoria in 1891 at 20 years old. Emily really enjoyed art school, but it wasn't all sunshine and roses. She found that antique and still life classes were extremely dull. Uh, she was also an extremely modest person and therefore refused to attend the new model classes. Uh, <laughs> see, that's what I that's what I'd be there for. I'd be like, you want to draw me naked? You want me to draw you naked? Let's do it. Let's just get naked. You know, it's hot, right? It's in yeah. San Francisco. So it's warm. <laughs> it's really warm. <laughs> Just sweat. It's humid. The sweatiest, humidest room. And it's just one naked guy. And you're all just like, okay. Get those sweat droplets right, kids. <laughs> I just drew a penis. I don't know if that's what we were supposed to do. It's just like all eighth grade right? students. Everybody like male just students drew just drawing dicks on everything. It's like, well, now you have to take a nude model class. How do you feel about that? And they're like, oh, I've been training for this my whole life. I'm ready. I'm ready. In her third year, she found depicting landscape a greater but welcome challenge than producing the well-defined contours of objects in the classroom. So now we're getting into like her wheelhouse of things that she likes. Right. However, she had little opportunity to pursue this subject for financial reasons. Due to the alleged mismanagement of her father's estate by a close friend following his death in 1888 and the economic downturn of 1893, the Carr family simply didn't have the money to keep Emily in school, and so she returned to Victoria in December of 1893. Hmm. At home, overseen by her three unmarried sisters, Edith, Elizabeth, Emily, and Alice Mary, she taught art to young boys and girls. She started to exhibit her landscapes and still life paintings at Victoria's agricultural fairs. <laughs> she was at the Big X. Yeah, showing off her paintings. She's going to the exposition. <laughs> the exposition. Oh, exposition. <laughs> no. Exhibition. Exhibition. Ex I keep thinking exposition. No. <laughs> because I've been working at the fortress. Oh, right. And exhibits are called expositions. I'm sorry. I'm just so French. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, um, Grace is one of those. French girls that Not, uh, Leo painted on the <laughs> Titanic. I wish. Right. But only 90s Leo. I don't think Leo's hot anymore. No, no, no. It's, it's gone. 90s Leo was... The a, ticket. Oh, man. Mm. Yeah. Did you know James Cameron actually drew that picture? Really? Yeah. He, he, he drew... Is it of Kate? Oh, it's his hand. I don't know, but it's his hand drawing it. Like, he actually drew it. Like, the picture was drawn by James Cameron. That's gross. Um, And when it goes to the hand, like, drawing it, it's James Cameron. <laughs> he was like... No, this part's for me. <laughs> Leo's like, actually, I've been training a lot. And he's, and like, he's like, shut up. No. <laughs> when she returned to Victoria, she found a new theme for her work. So Emily had read Alexander Pope's essay on man, which celebrated native peoples for what he and his contemporaries perceived as their, quote, untutored minds, inherent goodness and freedom from social conventions. Nice. Be white. <laughs> Be white. Very white statement. It's just like, oh, wow, they're so dumb and always nice. And they don't have any social conventions. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> oh, all right. Okay. Moving on. Anyways, it spurred her curiosity and led her to seek contact with local indigenous peoples. In 1980... See, that's cool. Even that yeah. she's like, yeah, I'm just going to get in touch with them and see what we can do. Yeah, she's like, I need to meet these people. Yeah, I, gotta I think that's figure very like, figure forward. Figure out what this is all about. Yeah, that's very forward thinking. 
1898, at age 27, Emily made the first of several sketchings and painting trips to indigenous villages. She stayed near Euclulet on the west coast of Vancouver Island, which was the home of the Nucha Nulith people, and then commonly known to English-speaking people as the Nutka. Uh, Emily recalled her time there, and she said that it really made an impression on her. An impression on the impressionist painter. Funny. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. <laughs> Here she produced pen and ink drawings and watercolors of the village scenes, and the people there gave her a nickname, which translates to the one who tends to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I could just imagine is just like nervous giggles the whole She's time. Like, You're like, <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're saying stuff to her, and she doesn't know what they're saying. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> the following year in 1899, Emily was able to continue her formal training when she traveled to London, England. There, she studied at Westminster School of Art, and she spent two years repeating with the addition of painting from the nude. So now she's doing the nude model classes. <laughs> uh, the courses that she had already taken she's in California. She's doing the nude. She's doing the nude. She shows up to class like, do I have to be naked too? So she just shows up with no clothes. And they're like, Emily, no. Like, whoa. She's like, oh God. <laughs> During the late summer of 1901, she fled the overcrowded classrooms and moved to St. Ives, Cornwall. Working under Swedish maritime artist Julius Olsen and English landscape painter Algernon Mayo Talmadge. That's a name. That's that's a lot of name. That's a lot of None syllables. of those names are names anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> Algernon. <laughs> Algernon. I think I'm going to name my baby Algernon. Funny though, because all of that sounds like noises the Swedish chef makes. On but he's the, the English Muppets. guy. I know. Oh, God. oh, he's the English guy. The English oh. guy. And then the Swedish guy is Julius Olsen. Oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> uh, so working with them, she discovered the woods above the harbor as a motif. So she likes Ooh. woods and then water. Woods, water. Did she ever come to Nova Scotia? <laughs> no, but. Girl um, was missing out. Clearly in St. Ives, it's like, like chef's kiss, number one. <laughs> in the spring of 1902, she relocated to Bushy Hedderfordshire. Hedderfordshire. <laughs> and she studied with academic landscape painter John Whitley. However, her classes came to an abrupt end in the autumn of 1902 because of illness or exhaustion. In January of 1903, nervous strain and severe headaches, along with the guilt she experienced after rejecting her Canadian suitor, William Mayo Paddon, resulted in her admission to the East Anglian Sanatorium. Oh, no. Imagine feeling that guilty. Like, so she's like a dupe, I guess, proposed to her and she's like, no, thank you. And then she goes, she starts to have nervous, such nervous strain and severe headaches that she needs to go to a sanatorium. Or did he like say no? And then the people just came and got her. The people in the white jackets were just like, they strapped her up. Nobody says no to a guy like that. William? Seriously? Oh, girl. William? And then they Get just in the chair. her away. <laughs> she's like, what? I I swear I'm sane. And they're like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> and she remained there for 14 months. Okay. Later on, Emily would write disparagingly of her four and a half year sojourn in England, but it helped her reinforce her identity as a Western Canadian artist. So she's like, I didn't like living in England, but it made me feel more confident that I wanted to paint BC. Yeah. That's who I am. In 1904, Emily returned to Victoria, and the following year, she began working for Week Magazine as a cartoonist. A cartoonist? That's so cool. There's so many cartoonists that we come across. It's it's kind of funny. I feel like we've brought it up probably three or four times. Yeah. People love it. That's People love cool. the funnies. People love it. People love to laugh. And she's she's the lady who laughs or whatever. She's the one who laughs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emily Carr invented Blondie. Yes. <laughs> She is Blondie. She is Blondie. <laughs> she renewed her contact with Native peoples um, and went on a second trip to Euclulet 
and she escaped the suffocating environment of her family household by moving to Vancouver. Uh-oh, things are rough with you. Imagine Edith. the, like, three unmarried sisters in the house still. Yep. And they're like, oh, you're back. She's like, oh, God. <laughs> Again. I gotta go. <laughs> Over the next five years, she held classes for adults and children, and she sketched the trees in Stanley Park. I've been to Stanley Park. It's oh, very that's lovely. super cool. Big old trees. Nice trees? Big old trees. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I feel like redwoods are definitely... Int- I don't know yeah. if they're actually redwoods there. I'm not positive, but... That's West a coast, tree. That's West, in coast the West Coast trees are a lot different than East Coast trees. East Coast yeah. trees are kind of small. So are the squirrels. Yeah, the squirrels get so big yeah. as you go further west. Oh my gosh, the squirrels in Ontario are horrifying. They're massive they're the size of cats i feel like that is one of the most maritime things is yeah. when you go you go anywhere it's like what was your first impression i was like your squirrels are huge our squirrels are like so cute they're little babies they're little yeah. tiny babies they're just so sweet we just have little red squirrels and then you get gray squirrels out west and they're just like the size of they cats they are so big and like evil looking <laughs> anyway aggressive In June 1907, Emily had made a seminal trip to Alaska, during which she saw its native villages as rendered by an unnamed American artist. She painted her first totem poles at Indian River Park. So this is like her first time seeing totem poles, which is what she's best known for, is her paintings of totem poles. So she is in awe. Yeah, she's, yeah, like in the Heritage Minute, it's like, wow, which... I have seen so I when I visited Vancouver they do have a lot of totem so poles I was everywhere. Say, I've never, They're really cool. I've seen totem poles in museums. So the okay. Museum of Civilization Ottawa has actual like totem poles that yeah. are there as like artifacts. And like they're big and amazing and cool in a museum. So I can't imagine what it's like to see them like Odin in like nature. Like to just see like Yeah. Well, I I didn't see them in nature. I saw yeah. them in vancouver like they just have them in the city and basically any green space you'll find them but they are very impressive so i'm just thinking like for her to just be like yeah in the woods and then like especially because i think we have a an awareness of what a totem pole is if you really didn't know what they were about or like hadn't really seen them before you're like whoa oh you know where else there's a bunch of totem poles the disney pavilion in florida (laughs) (sighs) yeah Doe skins and totem poles. That's Canada. And maple syrup. And maple syrup. Lots of maple syrup. <laughs> maple syrup mafia. And oars. They had oars everywhere. At oars? the Disney Patel- Like canoe oars? Yeah, just like as decoration and hockey sticks. <laughs> Anywho. So she's painting totem poles now. She, she's, Good for her. Good she, for Emily. You know, she's hitting her groove. Hitting her vibe. Although members of the First Nations had never stopped producing work for their own use as well as for the tourist trade, Emily, like anthropologists of the time, was convinced that she was viewing the remnants of their culture, believing Mm. that it was her duty to document the totem poles and villages before they vanished. She spent the next three years visiting settlements on the northeast coast of Vancouver Island and in the interior of the province. So she feels like she has this duty to ensure that these places are remembered, which yeah. I do believe is very um, genuine. I do think it's genuine and I do think it is admirable. Well, it sounds like her heart is in the right place. She's just uneducated. It's about, just naive. It's just naive. Yeah, it's yeah. naive. Her heart's in the right place, but it's naive. She's not doing this in a malicious way. No, no, like no, she's no. not, she's definitely doing this because she thinks it's like a good thing to do. Yeah, and I don't think that she thinks thinks it's a money-making venture right either. like right there's nothing in particular there's nothing there's nothing in the current art scene that would tell you that these kinds of canvases would be you know big ticket items yeah you know I, I really don't think it's for personal gain I think it's just for personal interest and that was the 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 driving academic belief at that time is that you know these cultures are going to die out and so yeah. unless we collect pieces of the culture and bring them back to our museums or unless we paint and record them people will forget about it and of course that is like extremely pretentious and so pretentious and very like uh high and mighty to think that your culture is the only one that's going to survive but i don't think it comes from a malicious place no no i i don't especially in that time and with like what was what was happening in the world at that time i don't i really don't feel like Emily meant that in a no in a mean negative 
Yeah. And of course, that mindset only comes if you have, you come from a culture that does do something malicious. Like you don't get to this point without doing something bad in the first place. Yeah. But on a personal level, I don't think that she's doing anything inherently wrong. We, we heart Emily Carr. Emily Carr, (laughs) you're all right. (laughs) You get the pass from the Minute Women. You'll do. You pass the PC test. Yeah. In 1910, uh, Emily held a studio exhibition with her indigenous-inspired canvases. The proceedings from the sales paid for a voyage to France that would last over a year. So she's she's heading to France. She's just a world traveler, she is. I know. She's getting around. She's like uh, Robert Harris, our uh, rural teacher, painter guy. Yeah, she's famous. Yeah. She's going to be a big deal. (laughs) She doesn't know it yet. Doesn't know it. But I got a feeling that this is going to work out. With an introduction to Paris-based English artist Henry Gibb and her companionship of her favorite sister, Alice, she left for Paris in July of 1910. That'd be great. It's just like, oh, you got to go do some painting stuff? I'll come and fuck around. That's cool. Yep. (laughs) Alice is just like... Do you mind if I come? Alice is like, take me with you. Edith is so much right now. (laughs) (laughs) Edith is being like totally like mom. R.I.P. Except she's not dead. (laughs) But now they're all dead. Everybody. What? Everybody in the story. Oh, dead. yeah. Like today. <laughs> today. Dead. 2020. Dead, dead. All dead. All right. Be the cars. <laughs> Following Gibbs advice, she enrolled at the Academy Colarossi. 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 <laughs> I have some Colarossi on my rigatoni. <laughs> having, having no knowledge of French, she found the teachers incomprehensible. <laughs> Duh, you go to a French school. Oh, Emily, like, Emily, Emily. I thought I'd be able to just pick up French. She can't read. She probably didn't realize that it was a French school. Turns out I can't. I thought we'd just be painting. But I don't know what they're saying. Uh, oh, poor thing. Poor, poor, sweet Emily. So Gibb then suggested that she study with a private teacher who was Scottish and his name was John Duncan Ferguson. Which, honestly, is probably just as incomprehensible as the French. But Emily's mental health was catching up with her again. The exhaustion of work resulted in a full nervous breakdown. Oh, Emily. Emily was admitted to the infirmary of the American Student Hostel. Following a slow recovery, she participated in Gibbs sketching classes east of Paris. The change of environment, the use of oils, the discovery that a painting could be more than a transcription of visual fact... And the act of working directly from nature prompted Emily to abandon academic conventions and embrace French post-impressionism as seen in her canvas, Autumn in France, 1911. Oh, very cool. So, yeah, she's just like, oh, it doesn't have to, I can, I can paint what I feel, not what I see. That must have been such like a revelation though for her. No. Like you think about it. I feel like there probably was a time where like creative writing wasn't a thing. And like, then you think about like creative painting, like you were always writing like real things that happened to like have record. Yeah. I feel like once you got record, then you could like be creative about it and make things up. And yeah. And I feel like painting, like, you know, you followed that same structure of like, think, think about that. Think about that feeling to be like, Oh, Oh, like I can paint. I can paint anything. Anything. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And I, I think that the human, brain is so good at making stories yeah like stories is the i if you if you ask me not an expert i think storytelling is what distinguishes humans from other animals is that we have this ability to tell things that a we haven't seen or that have never happened it's just like i can invent anything but so i find it really interesting that it comes to visual painting so much later but i think part of it is because visual art goes through such patronage and like there's such classism around who can paint and who, what get, what you get paid to paint like yeah a rich patron isn't gonna paint like pay you to paint nothing they're gonna pay you to paint their family or their yeah, estate portraits or, yeah. or their dog yeah who cares so after a brief spell in paris emily went to a fishing port to study with Francis Mary Hodgkins. Emily and Francis had a lot in common. They were both from colonial countries. So Emily is from Canada. Francis is from New Zealand. And they were both unmarried at this point. So I feel like they just have some camaraderie. (laughs) 
Both prefer the countryside to the bustle of Paris, so they feel more comfortable in France's countryside. And Frances was intent on adapting her exuberant post-impressionistic style to portraits of the colorfully oh, wait, wait, dressed wait. people. Frances is a lady? Yes. Oh, Frances I thought is this a woman. was going to be a little love story. Well, I mean, it Sorry. could be. It, it could be. be. But not out and about yeah. at this point in time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so... What Mary is, or Frances Mary, she's interested in painting color, the colorfully dressed people around her, but also the Mari of her homeland. So she, she paints the indigenous or native people of New Zealand. And so Emily has like that in common with her as well. Oh, that's cool. So in Brittany Coast, 1911, Emily demonstrated that she was capable of using Frances's vivid palette, bold outlines, and economy of short breast brush strokes in her watercolors so she's also like adapting her artistic style very cool when she returned to paris six weeks later she found that gibb had entered two of her oil landscapes into a salon so now they're like on display (gasps) fancy she returned to victoria in late 1911 and moved back to vancouver early in 1912 she hosted a show on the 25th of march and with over 70 of her paintings that she had painted in France. Imagine coming back with that luggage. <laughs> it's like 70 paintings. I guess you're probably mailing them home. They're, well, and also if you think about it, you might not even be mailing them home. They're on canvas and then probably rolled. Oh, you think so? You think they have to get restretched? Yeah. Ooh. I feel like that's risky. But it's probably easier. I feel like it's riskier but easier for like transport. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So her show was received uh, generally positively uh, throughout British Columbia. And it, this show was the first time that fauvism was introduced to British Columbia. So that's like the style of painting that she okay. is now. The Fau- post fauvism. 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 Uh, which is like the post-impressionistic style okay. that she paints in. Cool. Emily was now eager to apply these new styles that she had learned in France to her favorite subject, the indigenous culture of British Columbia. She undertook several expeditions in July of 1912 uh, to various villages along the east coast of Vancouver Island. Uh, She journeyed up the Skeena River, and then she went to Queen Charlotte Islands. In pieces such as Kernshua, she made the totem pole, rather than the village scene, the central motif of her post-impressionistic-inspired works. In October, she hung the canvases resulting from this trip at the studio club's annual exhibition she unsuccessfully attempted to persuade the provincial secretary and minister of education that the government should acquire her collection because it documented quote real art treasures of a passing race end quote in april of 1913 she gave lectures on native art and displayed nearly 200 examples of her paintings and drawings at drummond hall in vancouver that's amazing that's such a collection she's very prolific yeah and also i think it's interesting that she is trying to get the government to acquire her pieces not private collectors well that's also very that's ahead of her time like Mm -hmm. to to understand that the value of art is something that should be owned like by yeah by government is an educational piece like it has value outside of enjoyment i think that that's really cool yeah definitely 100 agree Although the lectures and the pictures were enthusiastically reviewed, she had hoped to sell more and for a greater price. And she also hoped that she had would garner more attention from the press, but she wasn't. Yeah, she sounds like us. <laughs> hey, we've been in Global Mail. We've yeah. been on the CBC. The CBC. The whole As CBC. As my mom would say. <laughs> the whole CBC and nothing but the CBC. Yep. Already erecting an apartment house in in Victoria that would provide her with a steady income, she returned to the city a few weeks later and entered into a dark, uninspired phase of her life. So she's like, just poured all of her time and energy. She kind of sounds a little, um, like, manic depressive. I'm not yeah. sure if that's the word you would use anymore. But it yeah. sounds like she goes through these, like, phases of, like, intense production. And then she has, like, these crashes. Well, I was even going to say, like... Potentially even bipolar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because she seems to have like ups and huge then like swings. huge lows. Yeah. yeah. 
So like after these uh, sales and lectures didn't really bring her as much money as she had hoped, she just, she basically like doesn't quit art, but she stops trying to be an artist and she just decides to be a landlord. So the next 14 years of Emily's life, she just devoted to running her apartment building, which is named Hill House. Okay. So (laughs) during this period of time, Emily acquired a menagerie. Do you know what a menagerie is? I don't. That's when people like just collect animals. (laughs) So. (laughs) A zoo? Yeah. So she had a parrot. She had a chipmunk. She had a monkey named Woo. Oh. And she started a kennel, and she raised some 350 sheepdogs. Wowza. Yeah. Emily. I actually, so I want to show you this picture. Okay, I'm um, excited. We'll, we'll post it on our Instagram. Yes, we will. So this is a picture of Emily okay. Carr. I haven't seen the picture. I'm waiting. With the saddest looking dog. Oh my <laughs> goodness gracious. Wow. First of all, let's talk about Emily. Emily uh, Emily l- looks, looks, like the, looks like the saddest lady. She's got a sweet <laughs> headband, sweatband on, uh, which I'm sure was very in vogue uh, when this picture was taken. Oh, that little dog just looks so sad. Its eyes are so watery. Oh. Its tongue is so out. I want to help It's him. like a tiny little like shih tzu. Like something like that, yeah. It's just so funny. Oh, it's such a little floof. It looks about like 15 pounds. <laughs> we'll definitely post that on our Instagram because oh, it's, 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 sure. it's worth a look. It's worth a, it's worth a look-see. But yeah, so she's now like really into animals. Huh. She's raising all of these dogs. Um, she didn't wholly quit painting during this time, but you know, it's definitely not the forefront of her life. That being right. said, in 1916 to 17, she did spend eight months in San Francisco. Uh, and oh, she let those creative juices flow in San Fran. <laughs> yeah. So she's she's going back to California and there she helped paint decorations for the St. Francis Hotel from December of 1917 to October of 1919. She drew cartoons again, uh, this time for Western Women's Weekly. Oh, And near her home, she produced canvases of the cliffs on Dallas Road that loomed over Juan de Fuca Strait. She also stayed in the company of like-minded artists, so she's still, like, hanging out. She's got a crowd, you know? With artist friends. She's got a crowd, for sure. Yeah, and, like, I mean, she's also unmarried still. Like, I feel like for a woman during that period of time, it really isolates you if you're not married. I have one word for you, Grace. Lesbian. Lesbian. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. One word. Two it's, syllables. Three syllables. Lesbian. Three syllables. Because she could have gotten married, but she turned it down. She was like, no, thank you. Yeah, because she's gay. Potential. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly gay. Linnea has a pretty good gaydar. I have a pretty good gaydar. The way she was like. The way she looked at that picture. The way she looked at that picture, I was like, gay. That's butch. <laughs> <laughs> Things began to turn around for Emily in the autumn of 1927. Okay. That September, Emily met with the director of the National Gallery of Canada, Eric Brown. The two had much in common, and Emily's belief that she was painting the real British Columbia fit into Brown's nationalist project, which was exemplified by his promotion of the Group 7, whom he had introduced and helped form. So this guy is like, he's not part of the Group 7, which is like Canada's most... I don't know if they're the most famous Canadian painters today, but they were the first like group of painters that tried to paint a Canadian or create a Canadian art scene. Right. Um, that was based around painting Canada and Canadian landscapes. Yeah. Which I always thought Emily Carr was part of group seven, but she's so not. Did I, uh, the, the, I always thought she was a member of the group of seven. Yeah. But, but she's not. That's which weird because like, I like could have sworn, like I, be, I believe you. Obviously. 100%. You're the expert. Grace. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, like I, I feel like she's just so uh, intertwined with that. Like, in when yeah. you're talking about, like, in a history class or something, it's like, you know, the group of seven, Emily Carr. Like, it's just, like, it's same kind of time, same kind yeah. of idea, same kind of projects. So. A- and, yeah, like they say, like, her and Eric Brown have so much in common because they have similar philosophies about art. Like, right. you should be painting, like, what you see and where you live. Right. Um, but, yeah, going through group seven, of course, as I learned, is, like, all guys, I think. Yeah, It's yeah, all yeah. men, so... Oh, well. 
what she perceived as a rejection of her art by the public in both Vancouver and Victoria and by government officials accorded with the director's image of the struggling artist. So she also fits that mold of he's like intrigued by artists who have been rejected, Uh, which is like a little full of yourself. But it's just like real artists have to struggle because otherwise you're not doing anything profound. Above all, her conviction that the native culture of the Northwest Coast was in decline and that it was up to modernist non-natives to celebrate indigenous subject matter suited the exhibition that Brown was planning in Barbo. So again, a little out uh, of time by today's standards, but the idea that you should celebrate indigenous cultures in art but you do that by getting white people to paint it rather than getting indigenous people to show you their art. (laughs) Again, like I feel like everybody's heart is in the right place. It's just a different time. It's just like like naive. (laughs) It's super naive and super not kosher by today's standards. But at the time, I again, I don't think it was being done with malice. It was being done with like interest. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. Admiration even. Definitely. I think that she very much admires their visual style and culture. And so she wants to copy it. And then she also feels that she has the means more than they do to present that art. And, you know, if she makes a profit from it, she makes a profit from it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So in the late autumn of 1927, Emily traveled to Ottawa to attend the opening of the exhibition of Canadian West Coast art, native and modern at the National Gallery. That sounds like it might as well just be called the Emily Carr. <laughs> the event. Emily Carr exhi- exhibition. <laughs> exhibit, yeah. As art historian Gerda Moray has observed, Emily's contribution to this display established her role in Canadian culture, quote, as a mediating figure between modern European dominated art and an exotic primeval native world. So mm-hmm. she's like sugar that helps the medicine go down. She's like showing an art style that usually would be dismissed as primitive and exotic in a palatable way to European art critics. Wow. So she's okay. like they're they're into it. They're into because it. She she's whitewashed it a little. Probably probably whitewashing yeah. it a little bit uh and it's also it's in a format that they're comfortable with. Right. Because like if you show like basket weaving. Yeah. To them, that's like a craft. And it's just like, oh, that's not, it's pretty, but it's yeah. not worth my time. But this is art. This is, yeah, this is something that we can art. like critique. Yeah. Yeah. She met many notable Canadian artists and made several important private sales, but it was her encounter with the leader of Group 7, Lauren Harris, who introduced her to Theosophy, which is the philosophy maintaining that a knowledge of God may be achieved through spiritual ecstasy, direct intuition, or special individual relations. So essentially telling her that like she can express her spirituality through her work. And then they all smoked some weed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if Emily's smoking weed, but it's definitely like... They're smoking something. The the closest you can get to God is through your artwork. Okay. And so you should do that, Uh, which really intrigues the now 55-year-old Emily. That's the other thing. She really doesn't become famous until she's like in her 50s. 55. Yeah. For her. (laughs) With Harris's work and his philosophy in mind, Emily made a second major excursion in the summer of 1928 to native villages on Queen Charlotte Islands uh, along the Skeena and Ness Rivers. Her process was to paint watercolors and sketches on these excursions and then return to the studio in Victoria, where she would adapt them into oil paintings, adding depth, contrast, and definition. The following spring, she contributed two paintings resulting from her northern expedition to the annual exposition of the Ontario Society of Artists. When Harris saw her new work, he assured her that, quote, I, her visions, ideas, feelings, were coming to precise expression. Hmm. He's like, you're doing it, kid. You're getting real good at this. And she's like 55 and she's like, thanks. She's like, uh, thanks. Finally. Just waiting for my old age pension to kick in. (laughs) Nevertheless, he suggested that she drop the native theme. (laughs) Get rid of that shit. It's like, wow, you're doing really great. Stop painting this boring crap and paint this other stuff. Uh, and then she, he was like, but you know, it'd be really great landscape, (laughs) paint some trees. 
So she followed his advice. Okay. And she traveled in 1929 to the dense forests uh, surrounding Uquot. 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 Where is this? Uh, this is in British Columbia. I okay. Believe. Northern So British she's Columbia. still staying in BC. Yeah, she's definitely Girl, BC She focused. really missed out not coming to the East Coast, let me tell you. I think she would have had a good time. I think she would have loved it here. Maybe I do get the sense that she's very uptight, though. I feel like she wouldn't move well in, like, not that this is she a maritime like specific thing. But yeah, I guess so. But she also had, like, a nervous breakdown because of it. She did, yes. <laughs> that is true. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> She's just like, this is like me having to read those sermons all over again. Well, it was again. like the topless beaches, you know, and all the churches. Yeah, that was like nightmares for her. But can I wear my headband? <laughs> I love my headband. What about the headband? I know it's a nude beach, but yeah. can I keep the headband can I just, on? Please. Please. <laughs> Emily had long associated the mystery and fear that she felt in the forest with the presence of God, which I think they actually talk about in the Heritage Minute. It's like, there's her yeah. monologue as she's walking through the forest and it's kind of like what she feels when she sees yeah. the forest. Yeah. So guided by the art influences that she'd been interacting with over the last few years, she decided to reduce the trees in these paintings to simple cones and triangular spheres and chose to uh, have a very simple color palette of cool grays and browns. So she's like simplifying her art. Down. Very cool. Soon dissatisfied with the aloof and distant representation of God in canvases such as the painting Grey, she employed a looser, less stylized, and more expressive rendering that portrayed a more benevolent God. So now she's painting God stuff, Ooh. but like God in nature and, and God's creation. Right. Thinking pieces. Thinking pieces. <laughs> In 1934, Emily observed in her journal that, quote, I am painting on my own vision now, thinking of no one else's approach and trying to express my own reactions. Deep. Deep. Using the full sweep of her arms, she reduced the forest vegetation in this painting, Stumps and Sky, to a series of S-curves, chevrons, and rising spirals that caused the trees virtually to dance across the paper. From 1932 to 1936, when Emily's expressionistic style was a vehicle for representing her spirituality, she produced some of the most accomplished paintings that she is known for, including Reforestation in 1936, which I believe is the painting on the cover of Barkskins, the book that I've recommended a couple of times oh, on this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, I believe cool. it's an Emily Carr painting on the Very cover cool. of it. Very yeah. cool. Around 1938, she completed a penetrating self-portrait Less successfully, she brought the loosely rendered forest vegetation and the full volume totem poles together in a work, including um, a work called Stigget Pole. So now she's like trying to mold these two things. I guess people didn't like it. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. But I, whatever. I, I bet you today someone would I was just be gonna say, stoked about it. I bet you people would have been super into it. Today. Yeah. I think, and now it's a name thing. Heck, like, I'm people. I'd be super into it. If I owned an Emily Carr painting, I don't, she, it could just been a couple dots on a page. I've I've held a Pablo Picasso. Oh, that's cool. I've yeah, seen CBU a Pablo library. Picasso, but I've never held one. CBU um, Art Gallery has a Pablo Picasso sketch journal. That's cool. Yeah. So Emily's reputation grew exponentially during the 1930s. She exhibited an Ontario Society of Artists, the Canadian Group of Painters, of which she became a member in 1933, hmm. the Art Association of Montreal, and the Art Gallery of Toronto, uh, where her canvases accompanied those of Group 7. Wow. Okay. And Yeah, and then she was also part of National Gallery annual presentations and in private galleries, and she was extremely influential in British Columbia especially. So, like, Very any cool. emerging artist out of British Columbia is like, I want to be like Emily Carr when That's I grow really up. That's really cool. Sadly, at the end of the 1930s, Emily only had a few years remaining in which she had both the financial resources and the health to exploit her great gifts. In January of 1937, she suffered the first of several heart attacks, and in March of 1939, she would have a small stroke. Aww. After illness prompted her in 1938 to sell her van, known as the Elephant, which was <laughs> the, the car that facilitated her sketching trips on the outskirts of Victoria That's for the so past cool. five years. <laughs> That's so it's like, cute. I've got to sell the Elephant. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So she, because she had to sell that, she decided to rent a series of cottages. So okay. I believe that's so she can continue to do these excursions. That's so cool. Good for her. 
Between 1938 and 1942, she made four excursions that provided materials for canvases such as Dancing Sunlight in 1939. After 1937, uh, Emily devoted more of her time to writing in her journal, corresponding with a large circle of friends, and started writing short stories. Loosely based off her encounters with First Nations peoples, her childhood, her animals, and her apartment house tenants, her tales are sentimental and moralistic. They show a prejudice against foreigners and those whites whom she considered socially inferior, though. Ugh, again, <laughs> like, it's the times, and it doesn't make it okay. I Again, that sucks It's just that like, she did that, but... Yeah, it's one of those things of, like... Yeah. It's I think gonna, you should have to be able to talk about it, but also yeah. I don't know if it can discredit their whole work because exactly. then literally everyone ever is discredited but, for everything they've ever done. Well, and honestly, even for me, like that's not going to take away from my enjoyment of this episode, knowing that she wasn't always super politically correct. Yeah. <laughs> I love that she's just like those whites whom she considered socially inferior. You know, she's talking about like the Italians and the Irish. Yeah. <laughs> She's just like, not them. Anyone but them. <laughs> oh, the poor Irish. Her stories also celebrated her love of nature and her perceived closeness with the indigenous people of British Columbia. In 1939, an executive at the CBC offered Emily a publishing contract. That's amazing. So her at the CBC. The CBC. The CBC that we were in. <laughs> yeah. We are Emily Carr. Oh, this has come full circle. So Clee Wyke, which was published in 1941, was the story that she wrote following this contract. And it received the Governor General's Literary Award in 1942. Like, this is something I knew nothing about so Emily cool. Carr. She was also, like, an actually, like, an awarded author That's well. very cool. And this is the girl who couldn't read. Yeah. She's writing books. What? Full circle. I think this is the real triumph of the yeah. episode. She went from not being able to read sermons to writing whole goddamn books. <laughs> whole goddamn books. They probably weren't goddamn books. She liked God. She did whole a lot. God holy books. God gosh darn. Gosh darn. <laughs> gosh darn. Some it. good gosh darn novels. Yeah. You probably swear less on this podcast, but yeah, you know what? But who cares? Who cares? If you care, let us know. Yeah, please. <laughs> Imagine the person's like, I would have given it five stars, but they swear a lot, so I gave it four stars. I'll be like, ooh. <laughs> Fuck you. We'll get our editor Mark to make clean edited versions for you. Bleep us. Mark's like, Mark says that's no. so much work. Mark says no, but <laughs> the amount of bleeping he'd have to do is just not good. Oh, right, Anyways. So this book was followed by The Book of Small and The House of All Sorts, which is the book that I think she's most known for. Yeah. Um, and I have not read, but I have seen The that, Book of All Sorts. The, book, yes. the House of All Sorts. The House of All Sorts. Yes. I know someone who owns it. Yeah. As it, like a table conversation piece. Yeah. It's like totally based off of her her time as a landlord like the house that she rented yeah. and so now in retrospect people don't call that house ha uh, hill's house or house hill uh which is what it's actually called they call it the house of all sorts that's so and sweet. like yeah so after that book came out they changed the name of that like building i like that paintings from emily's last decade reveal her growing anxiety about the environmental impact of industry on british columbia's landscape her work from this time reflected her growing concern over industrial logging, its ecological effects, and its encroachment on the lives of indigenous peoples. In her painting, Odds and Ends, from 1939, uh, the cleared land and tree stumps shift the focus of the majestic forestscape that lured European and American tourists to the West Coast to reveal instead the impact of deforestation. So now she's just like, look at... Like, you've ruined this beautiful landscape. Look which at the mess you made. so impactful for an artist who's been painting that for decades. Yep. Like, she's been painting British Columbia's, like, landscape for so long that, like, yep. she can actually show you, like, this is what I used to paint and this is what I paint now. Yep. It's, like, it's really bad. In 1942, an ailing Emily set aside 45 paintings for the Emily Carr Trust she had created the previous year. The works were to be on permanent loan to the Vancouver Art Gallery. Because of concerns about a possible Japanese invasion, so we're amidst World War II right now. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, these paintings were shipped to central Canada for the remaining years of the Second World War. 
Emily suffered her last heart attack and died on March 2nd, 1945 at the James Bay Inn in her hometown of Victoria, British Columbia, shortly before she was to have been awarded an honorary doctorate by the University of British Columbia. The girl who couldn't read was going to get an, an honorary, honorary doctorate. <laughs> I feel like we've always, I feel like the girl couldn't read. <laughs> it's just like, she just had trouble reading. That'll be the title of this <laughs> episode. she was a kid. No one will know what it's about. <laughs> the girl who girl couldn't, couldn't read. read. In 1945, the Art Gallery of Toronto and the National Gallery of Canada staged a memorial exhibition entitled Emily Carr, Her Paintings and Sketches. In 1971, the Vancouver Art Gallery marked the centenary of her birth with a major show. Wow. During the next two decades, Emily's work was celebrated in solo exhibitions and presented alongside that of other leading Canadian artists within the country and beyond its borders. By the early 1990s, uh, her life and her artistic production were being viewed in a slightly different light. With the perspective of indigenous voices and settler colonial rhetoric and philosophy, some authors noted that Emily had a flawed vision of Western Canadian landscapes. Yeah. Others felt that she had possessed a limited knowledge of Native art yes. and culture and had appropriated Native images and stories, which so is valid. That's that's valid, and that's where I am kind of yeah. on her. Yeah, and ultimately, at the end of the day, while that's true, I think it's also true that it's not done in a malicious way. No. It's not like she's like trying i mean to do that. i don't know emily i don't but personally know her i know she owned a monkey named woo yeah and that's about it she doesn't seem like the malicious type you know <laughs> but she didn't like inferior whites yeah <laughs> those brits man <laughs> as as we said in our first episode the idea that british instincts are good for some reason is the most flawed it's idea so, in history uh, british oh, instincts dear. are terrible so terrible <laughs> So despite such criticisms, Emily Carr remains Western Canada's most famous non-native artist and Canada's leading female painter. Wow. In the survey that we talked about in uh, one of our really early episodes, the uh, Kenneshwak Ashavek episode, she is the most famous female Canadian. Like huh. when people are like, who's a famous Canadian that you know by name and you can say what they did. Oh, yeah. Emily Carr was the one that most people were like, I know who she is and I know why she's famous. Yeah. Which I, maybe it's, I feel like part of it's the name, like Emily Carr. It's I also like, feel like part out. of it might be the heritage minute. The heritage you know? minute probably helped. Yeah. Also visuals, like I think people remember visuals really well. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's easy to be like, she's a painter. Yeah. <laughs> That's why she's famous. That's easy. It's true. <laughs> So she introduced modernism to the West Coast during the second decade of the 20th century. Through her paintings and her short stories, she created an awareness of First Nations culture among an initially unsympathetic non-Native audience. Above all, she provided a unique vision of the coastal landscape that made Canadians look at the forest in a new way. Very cool. That's the art, life, and death of Emily Carr. I liked it. She's, she's a cool person. She had a funny looking dog. She had a good. She had a good story. At the end of the day, all I care about. It was. It was a cute dog. It looked very sad, but it was cute. It just didn't look like it wanted to be in that picture. I love that she wrote. I love that she was a writer. Yeah, that's so cool. I had no idea. And like, a landlord. And like I said, I knew that there was like that book, but I didn't know if like she wrote that, if that was like about her, or like whatever. I just I yeah. knew that that was like a book having to do with Emily Carr. So that's like very neat. Like an award winning writer. Yeah. I, cool story. Cool story, Grace. Thanks. I made it up. It's all fake. <laughs> I'm uh, a Grace, writer. JK. That's the, this is the wrong podcast. JK, JK. Just this kidding. This is the minute It's all women. real. <laughs> and they're all dead. And everybody's dead. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. It's always so fun to have you tune in to the podcast episodes. If you aren't already following us on our social media channels, we are on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and Facebook at the same handle. Then we're also on Twitter at The Minute Women. We also have a fantastic website, www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. Go check it out. It's great. <laughs> the visuals are so aesthetic. Emily Carr would be proud. Emily Carr would be so proud <laughs> yeah and if you have not subscribed to our podcast make sure you subscribe to our do podcast. it download the episodes it's really easy and once again 
I'm calling out to all you Apple podcast users. You guys, you guys are like the GI Joes of podcast <laughs> listeners. You know why? Because you can leave reviews. All the other platforms don't let you leave a review. It's but true. you guys can leave a review. Leave us like a little five-star review. Write us. Tell us what you think in the review. And then it really helps us out because in the mythical algorithms of podcast listenership it boosts us up so we can share these stories with more people and it's so exciting because people need to hear these stories absolutely and speaking of sharing stories tell your friends about the podcast there's nothing better than word of mouth which is why i think podcasts are so successful words come from our mouths listening to a podcast by yourself great listening to a podcast with your friends better excellent it's the bestest of times yeah so yeah you know what you'll sound so smart You'll sound so funny when you're like, I've got this great podcast that you should listen to. Yeah. It's called Minute Women Podcast and you're going to love it. So yeah, share this podcast with all of your friends. Speaking of friends and podcasts also, our episode with North of Normal is now out officially. It is. So please go subscribe to North of Normal, um, Spencer and Hunter. They're really wonderful guys. Yeah, they we had us on the podcast. We had a great time hanging out with those boys and talking about Heritage Minutes as kind of a as kind of a whole topic of a discussion, not just one heritage minute at a time. And uh, go check it out. They're awesome. Yeah, they do like a really cool podcast on Canadian cinema. So if you're into like Canadian film or just film in general, it's a really great podcast. And Canadian television. Yeah. Yeah. So So North and Normal, check them out. Check them out. Listen to our episode on Canadian heritage minutes. It's a good time. It's a really good time. Yeah. We hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.